Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, June 12th, 2021. Right now, and once again, it is Tuesday morning, rather than the customary Wednesday. It is Tuesday morning, June 8th, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 40 of our series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we will continue our discussion of the bigger picture of Jacob and Esau in prophecy. To us, it is fully apparent in history, as the history of the white world has been recorded, that ever since Abraham placed Isaac on the altar, dedicating him to Yahweh, world history has struggled, has revolved around the blessings which Isaac had given to Jacob and Esau, and the resulting struggle between them and their respective descendants. Once the parties of Scripture are correctly identified, that struggle is manifest throughout history down to this very day. This is fully relevant to the circumstances under which we live in the modern world. It's not a coincidence that the entire world is fixated on these Jews. As we have explained, Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, had begun his discussion of the corrupted priesthood with a portrayal of the mistaken concern which Jacob would have for Esau. This served as the basis upon which Malachi then condemned the priests, and it explains the division among the people of Judea in the time of Christ, of which Malachi had also prophesied. This understanding of biblical prophecy helps to explain very precisely the circumstances under which we live today, as world Jewry is the center of global politics and international attention, and as Christians, especially those in America, support world Jewry without question, going so far as to worship Jews rather than Jesus. At the same time, world Jewry is at the vanguard of every policy favoring people of other races and nations to the detriment and even to the destruction of white nations. This is not a coincidence, as we have seen that Esau had wanted to kill Jacob as soon as he realized that Jacob received his father's blessing. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so so we're back on to Jacob and Esau, and uh, this is often an overlooked topic, the whole, you know, Jew-Esau thing. Modern Christianity is all about just the positive message of uh, Christ, about love your people and, and the commandments, but it completely overlooks that uh, a large part of Christ's ministry was actually identifying the enemy, right, and, and putting the line down, splitting the two parts that we have to not associate with them and this is what the apostles realized that there are these this other race of men that are contrary to men and and, and that's what 
we we all have to realize and that's what ci does that separates from christianity right it identifies all the races and it explains everything in the world today right bill well well right it's incredible that the churches refuse to teach this they don't teach this i, I don't think they ever had that they teach christians that everybody in israel was an israelite when paul of tarsus said that not all of those in israel are of israel and 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 Christ had purposely sought to divide his enemies and single them out. Throughout his ministry, the other apostles, Jude, Peter, John, all wrote about these infiltrators, these enemies of God, who who had basically snuck in and taught all kinds of false doctrines and introduced all sorts of heresies in, in their time. So who are these people? And we answer that. And we answer it from the history books and right from the pages of the New Testament, where these denominational churches, that they just gloss over all of this and, and try to, that their best to narrow it down to believers and, and non-believers, that's not how the apostles and that's not how Christ drew the line. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. They weren't his sheep in the first place, and they would never be a sheep. It's incredible that the church doctrines fly in the face of Scripture, that they blatantly contradict the Scripture, and they continue to get away with it, and people continue to follow all of the denominational churches which do that, and they follow them blindly. It's just incredible to me. And even people who are dual aware, if they don't have this message, then that they'll always restrain themselves. They'll always go, you know, Jews are evil, but we can't judge all of them. There, there must be a few good ones. And when you read this, you clearly realize that there's not, and, and that it explains everything in the world, right? Absolutely. And, and no, there are no good devils. There's no such thing as a good devil. It, it's, uh, I mean, the Apostle John warned in Second John in verses 9 to 11 that if someone didn't have the gospel of Christ, have the doctrine of Christ, to reject that person, not even to greet him, or as the King James has it, bid him Godspeed, which means to greet someone that we're not even to greet those who deny Christ. Christians shouldn't even greet or pay any respect or or do any business with any Jew or any Muslim who doesn't have the, who's not a Christian, basically. And that's the way it should have been from the beginning. Early Roman Catholic popes struggled over that question because there were always compromisers who sought to compromise with Jews, who tried to convert Jews, who forcibly tried to convert Jews. Doing that, they caused the church much more damage than they ever did good. They never did any good. They corrupted it. Well, with that, we should commence with Jacob and Esau in Prophecy, part two of proof number 52. We probably already offered hundreds of proofs, but this is number 52 in our list <laughs> that the Israelites were white. Noticing these, um, noticing these distinctions between Jacob and Esau and that the apostles went to Europe while these Jews were actually Edomites, 
that that stands alone as a proof that the Israelites were white. When Paul said that he only cared for his own kinsmen according to the flesh, and that's how Paul defined the word brethren. That alone should tell us that there are two different races in, in Palestine, and Paul defining brethren as kinsmen according to the flesh brought the gospel to Europe and called them his brethren. And he wasn't denying or contradicting himself. We can't take that for granted. And I digress once again. We've already discussed the sin of Esau and the resulting controversy between Jacob and Esau and between Rebekah and Esau, which led to Jacob's receiving the blessings of Abraham from Isaac in place of his elder brother. We have also discussed the prophecy of Christian Zionism which opened the words of the prophet Malachi and the more immediate consequences of the situation it describes relative to the ministry of Christ. But what we did not mention is how the undue concern for Esau himself had also been manifested later in the life of Jacob. When Jacob left Padanaram and the estate of Laban, and returned to the land of Canaan with his family, after an absence of as many as 20 years. We read in Genesis chapter 32, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau, Jacob giving Esau undue respect. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed there until now, and I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and he also comes out to meet thee, and four hundred men with him, four hundred Canaanites. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands, and said, If Esau comes to the one company and smites it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So Jacob feared Esau in spite of having the favor and promises of God, and he sought to shower him with gifts, calling him Master, Adon, which is often translated as Lord, and displaying great concern for him. So this undue concern and respect which Jacob had displayed for the fornicator Esau certainly also seems to be a type for the attitudes projected upon the descendants of Israel in Malachi chapter 1 and the attitudes found in the modern form of Christian Zionism of which Malachi prophesied. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, yeah it's interesting that um, we kind of split into two bands that we started all in Europe as one band and then we split up you know, across the world. Uh, I don't know if that, that's prophesizing anything there. 
and, and also um the way Esau, he he never actually did Jacob any harm there. That it shows that he was still an Adamite, uh, that that he greeted his brother. But certainly his descendants were all bastards, and and once Esau was dead, they would only try to kill us. That they're all evil, right? Well, absolutely. The bastard is forever the enemy of the trueborn son, and and the Edomites have 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 indeed been trying to exterminate Christianity ever since the time of Christ and, and always had a vendetta against the children of Israel before the time of Christ. Ever since the Exodus, the Edomites had a vendetta that they wouldn't let the Israelites come through their land at one point in, in the Exodus account. So yeah, they had you think, to, why not? What, what, would, what harm would it do? To, to, you know, if, if they still saw themselves as brethren, but, but clearly their uh, sinister nature came through, right? Right. Clearly, by then, they were actually alienated from Israel and, and against Israel by that point. So they were subjected in the time of David. They became um, forced vassals of Israel. And that situation lasted 400 years until the coming of the Babylonians, where, where when the, in the divided kingdom, they were, that they were in subjection to Judah. So they were happy when the Babylonians came to ally with the Babylonians and to join, you know, the vassal states will always lend their armies to the dominant state. And that's how empires are put together. And they were more than happy to tear down the temple and burn it. And, and the scriptures that we discussed last week had expressed that, that happiness. So we're going to continue from that point to continue our discussion of Jacob and Esau in prophecy. Focusing on Esau, we will begin with the 136th Psalm, where it states, If I do not remember thee. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards thee as thou hast rewarded us. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones against the stones. In our and and that's a psalm that's written in the captivity. That's not one of David's psalms. That psalm's written after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And this also, as we've cited other scriptures, attributes the destruction of Jerusalem to the Edomites even more than it does to the Babylonians, who, who were the actual um, empire and, and rulers of the world at that time that were responsible for the siege of Jerusalem. So in our last presentation discussing aspects of the history of Jacob and Esau in the kingdom period, we cited a portion of this passage along with 1 Esdras chapter 4, verse 45, to show the role which Edom had played in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple of Yahweh as allies of the Babylonians. 
But reading more of this psalm here, it is also evident that Edom is called the daughter of Babylon. So a connection between the two is being made. Surveying later history, it would not be unfair to extrapolate this connection through to the time of the writing of the Babylonian Talmud, down to the mystery Babylon of Revelation chapter 18. And there's a connection there that most people don't understand. But the Shitar, which is the commercial code in the Talmud of Jewry, became the basis for English mercantile law in the Middle Ages. And Mystery Babylon represents world commerce in the Revelation. There should be no doubt that Edomite Jews do indeed exert control of international commerce to this day, as they also had throughout the Middle Ages. So there is a connection, a direct connection, between these Edomite Jews, the Shitar, which the English had adopted as their commercial law, and Mystery Babylon. So Edom is called Daughter of Babylon here in the psalm. Now we shall and, return and to... I'm sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say they invented the whole stock market thing, didn't they? And and all the world banks, it's all their invention, right? Their idea. Yes, the entire contrivance belongs to the Jews who got themselves into England even before Cromwell made it more or less permissible for them to be in England, which may not be a fair assessment of what happened, but it's the basically the effect of what happened. That there was a decision that was never made by the English as to whether or not to allow Jews into England. So, even though the decision was never made officially in the time of Cromwell, the 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 matter of fact is that the Jews, even though they were proscribed from England in the reign of King Edward I, they were allowed to remain in England in spite of that from the time of Cromwell. And there were already Jews secretly in England before Cromwell. And Dutch Jews had financed Cromwell. So the, the glorious revolution was really only glorious for Jews because it, uh, it opened London up to them and, and all of their usury and, and financial shenanigans had begun in England after Jews were absent, virtually absent. They weren't allowed to, to conduct, to loan money at usury for, for several hundred years. They were absent from England, virtually. They had no control over England. And, and and Bill, even the term uh, like business, isn't that um, from them as well, where you can create a corporation that you're not actually responsible for? That, you know, you know, if somebody dies uh, due to your business, well, then it's the business. It's not the owner that you have these separate entities that 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 must have come from a Jew, right? Well, well right. A corporation, a, a corporation is an artificial person now. And. That wasn't supposed to be, not in America, but a corporation 
became recognized through court decisions as an artificial person that was allowed to exist in perpetuity well beyond the, the um, voice duration or, or abilities of a real person. And very often the people that are actually behind the crimes committed by corporations are never held accountable for it because the, the, the corporate entity is held accountable. So nobody really pays the price for the crimes that the corporate entity has committed. It, it's very, very rare. It's all business and the corporation gets fined and that's about it. And they go about their business. It, it's really contrary to the interests of real men and women, of real people. And yes, the entire concept seems to have been developed by Jews in the Middle Ages. Okay, I, I think I did a um, an entire podcast on corporations as people in part of my Protocols of Satan series several years ago, a series I hope to continue one day. Okay, now we shall return to some of the prophecies of Esau Edom in regard to the vengeance of Yahweh found in the book of Isaiah. And this is important, and, and we're going to do more in this area in our next proof next week when we discuss the nature of Edom in the New Testament and, and what the New Testament reveals the Edomites to be. We're going to make some of those connections this evening. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 through 8. Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world, and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of Yahweh is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be, so even though he hasn't done it yet, because it's talking in the future tense as well as the present, like Paul of Tarsus said, it, it's counting things as not existing because they didn't exist yet, as if existing. So, it speaks, for, it shifts from the present tense or the past tense to the future. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down, as the leaf falls off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So the Edomites are counted as among the people of God's curse. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the, lamb, the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bozrah, 
and a great slaughter in the land of Edomia. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. We must note that the indignation of Yahweh in that prophecy is upon all nations, while Edom is singled out as being at the center of that indignation. And we will discuss this at length when we discuss the prophecy concerning Edom, which is found in Obadiah a little later on. But first we shall present a similar prophecy found later in Isaiah. That was from Isaiah chapter 34. This next prophecy is from Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom with garments dyed from Bozrah? Bozrah and Edom were the central focus of the prophecy in Isaiah 34. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak I did speak in righteousness, mighty to save. In other words, God is who it is who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah. He's answering the question. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Then in verse 2, there's another rhetorical question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? And we see another answer in verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now here in these visions, Edom is pictured as the center of attention on the day of the wrath of Yahweh when he executes vengeance upon all of his enemies. The garments are dyed red with the blood of the Edomites. The language is figurative. Bozrah is one of the chief cities of Edom, first mentioned in the lists of Edomite princes in Genesis chapter 36. It is not that the Edomites will still dwell there, since they have not dwelt there in many centuries. But rather, the use of the name Bozrah here is an allegory which informs us of whom it is that Yahweh shall avenge himself. And Bill, that shows that um, he's absolutely going to have no mercy on any of them, that they're going to be wiped out. And even that prof that um, psalm you read, that um, dash if thy little ones, again, that's... Uh, against rocks, that again shows that Christ is going to kill all the children, right? All the bastards are basically going to be wiped out. No mercy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35, we must take note that in verse 8, after it speaks about the vengeance which is going to be executed against 
the Edomites, in verse 8 it says, For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And then, in the very similar prophecy, which is a parallel prophecy in Isaiah chapter 63, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Those two concepts both connect the destruction of Edom with what is basically the second coming of Christ and the time described in Revelation chapter 19 when he takes vengeance upon all of his enemies. In a synagogue in Nazareth, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, Yahshua Christ stood to read from the book of Isaiah a prophecy which also served as an announcement of his very purpose. So he read a passage found in Isaiah chapter 61, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and a recovering of sight to the blind. In other words, once you have the true gospel of Christ, you should be able to see and you should be able to tell the enemies from his people to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, the same concept which we saw in those prophecies in Isaiah that were cited earlier in relation to the vengeance that's going to be carried against Edom or executed against Edom. When we refer to that passage in Isaiah, Christ read what we now have in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 61, or, or I'm sorry, in verse 18. But he only read the first half, I'm sorry, I'm confusing myself. This is Luke 4, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. When we go back to refer to that passage as it is in Isaiah, because it's a citation of Isaiah chapter 61, Christ read what we now have in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 61. But where he said to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, he only read half of verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 61. The entire verse says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or year of Yahweh and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. So evidently, in his first incarnation, he came to fulfill the first part of verse 2. But he stopped short and didn't cite the second part because it was not his time to fulfill the second part. Then the next verse, verse 3 of the same chapter, declares, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, 
the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. That's the full purpose of Christ. But that last part won't be fulfilled until his second incarnation, until he returns to execute that vengeance against his enemies. But this last clause in verse 3, nevertheless evokes the words of Christ as he had spoken to his adversaries in Jerusalem, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, and warned them, that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. The word Zion in scripture was used prophetically to describe the mountain or people of Yahweh, in spite of the fact that it is also the name of one of the geographical mountains in Jerusalem. So note that in these prophecies, the day of vengeance is to appoint them that mourn in Zion, to execute the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And because the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come. That's Isaiah 61.3, Isaiah 34.8, and Isaiah 63.4. So Edom is at the center of the controversy of Zion and will be destroyed in order to settle that controversy. Therefore, the controversy must be the fact that it is the Edomites who have claimed to be Zion and the people of God ever since their forced conversion during the decades leading up to the time of Christ, have they asserted their part in the controversy of Zion? Because they are pretending to be Israel. They are pretending to be the recipients of the promises to Abraham. That's the controversy of Zion. It must be because Edom is in the center of it, and is going to be destroyed in the end. Yeah, if they um, were just claiming to be Edomites, there would be no controversy, right? We would be Israelites, they would be Edomites. So, so there must be something upset. Absolutely. Why would there be a controversy of Zion? So the controversy of Zion is first manifest in the books of the prophets in Ezekiel chapter 35 where we read once again that Edom had a hand in the destruction of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is writing this shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportations of the remaining Judahites to Babylon. So we see, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, which is the land of Edom, and prophecy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out my hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy city's waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, because thou hast had a perpetual 
hatred and has shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end, meaning when they were being taken captive off to Babylon. While the cities of Edom were ultimately laid to waste, as it also says in Malachi, the Edomites themselves were never judged as they had moved north into Palestine, into Israel and Judah. So we still await the fulfillment of aspects of Ezekiel chapter 35 as it continues and it says, Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Seeth thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. And of course, when we go back to Genesis chapter 27, in the blessings which Isaac had for Esau, Esau was prophesied to live by the sword. This passage is at least partly fulfilled as Christ was speaking of his enemies and the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, and he said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. But the next part of the prophecy in Ezekiel is not yet entirely fulfilled. So it is evident that Seir may be an allegory, like Bozer was an allegory, for the Edomites themselves. And it says, Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men, in thy hills, and in thy valleys, and in all thy rivers, and they shall fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy cities shall not return, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. Then the next part of the prophecy gives a reason for Esau's punishment and shows that it has not yet been fulfilled, and it also helps to explain what Yahweh had meant in Isaiah when he referred to the controversy of Zion. And we read in verse 10 in Ezekiel chapter 35, Because thou hast said, These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it. Whereas Yahweh was there, meaning God was there, but he left, he left his temple just before the destruction of the temple under the Babylonians. Edom is saying, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it. There's your controversy of Zion, the Edomites inhabiting Judah and Israel. And ultimately, after their conversion, pretending to be Israel. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will even do according to thine anger, and according to thine envy which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. We still await that judgment. 
which must follow the time that Esau said that these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it. And that is a reference to the time following the deportations of Israel and Judah when the Edomites moved into their lands and ultimately became Judeans, whereby they are known today as Jews. Except for the Jews who were slain in the rebellions against Rome, the Edomites have not been destroyed since then. And today, they number in the tens of millions. So it is apparent that their destruction still awaits them. Bill, do you think that this, um, the, these prophecies indicate that um, Yahweh will personally take care of the false state of Israel himself? And, or, or we just don't know how the day of the Lord will play out when Babylon falls? Well, well right. We can't see the future. We don't know how it's going to play out. Um, Revelation chapter 19, the book of Enoch, which was quoted by Jude, Yahweh shall come with 10,000s of his saints. It, it's hard to tell exactly how it's all going to end for the Edomite Jews. I don't want to imagine that I could tell the future from what the prophecy says. Yeah. But, but they are all going to be destroyed. That's inevitable. Yeah. And without Babylon, uh, Israel would be in a hard place, right? Without all the free money and, and free technology flowing into them, surrounded by um, all those Arabs anyways. Well, absolutely. Israel is supported by billions of dollars annually in, in American political aid alone and, and billions of dollars additionally in all sorts of Christian charities, such as the Christian, the, the fellowship between Christians and Jews that even I get junk mail from in my mailbox. If you ever subscribe to a, to a Jewish publication, and I do subscribe to Biblical Archaeology Review, and you're immediately put on the mailing list for the Fellowship of Christians and Jews because they expect you to be a Christian Zionist. They expect you to support the Jewish cause in Israel and fork over money. It, it's incredible that, that Esau said, I am impoverished, but we shall return and build the desolate places. They're constantly begging for money, begging for money in the name of Israel, and they have billions of Christians fooled, deceived into sending them money. And, and they receive billions and billions of dollars in aid, and, and they use it to further their criminal enterprises all over the world. Yeah, and you, you really see that, uh, how Jacob gave Esau all those flocks, that it's kind of uh, saying what's going to happen, right? Exactly. That's a type for what happens later in history. It's a type for exactly what's going on now. And it was prophesied by Malachi in those first four verses of, of Malachi chapter 1. This leads us to another prophecy of the destruction of the Edomites, which is found in Obadiah. While Obadiah is difficult to date, he clearly wrote when Jerusalem was already destroyed, and therefore he should be placed 
much later among the books of the Minor Prophets than he is, but certainly before those from the Second Temple period. Obadiah wrote when the temple was destroyed and the new temple was not yet built. So he should be placed before Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi in the ordering of the Minor Prophets. But after the, the Amos and Micah and, and the other Minor Prophets who wrote while Israel was being deported and Judah was still intact and the temple was still intact. So, the entire prophecy of Obadiah is an oracle against Esau after Judah had already been taken into captivity. And we shall read it in large part here while offering some commentary on various aspects. So we'll start with Obadiah verse 1. And of course, there's only one chapter in Obadiah. So to say, chapter 1 is redundant or unnecessary. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith Yahweh God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from Yahweh, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, or nations, if you will. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, or nations. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith Yahweh. And I would conjecture that only the wealthiest of men could dwell in the clefts of the rock, while having the pride of heart to say, who shall bring me down to the ground? And that predicament certainly also seems to aptly describe the Edomite Jews of today. They're not really dwelling in the clefts of the rock, but... Bunkers and bases and underground uh, you know, places everywhere, haven't they? And their own islands and all that. Well, absolutely. That they are set apart in many ways from from the common man. You cut out at the very beginning of your statement, though. I said uh, all, all the billionaire Jews have, um, you know, secret islands to themselves, uh, underground bases, under you know, even military forces, they uh, bases they can just buy and set up for themselves. So well, that would be all these clefts of the rock that they own. Right, they have done a lot of that, and, and they see themselves as being impregnable. And, and even the, the um, lesser wealthy live in gated communities and, and private enclaves all over the country or all over the world. Yeah, I believe every synagogue has a, a paid armed guard as well. That there'll always be a Jew standing there with a secret weapon, you know. That they always have that. It's always protected and gated. Right. There's actually a um, a video that circulated back a few months ago that showed an armed Orthodox Jew standing inside the gate, a locked gate of a synagogue, and some guy was 
walking up and filming him and the Jew shot him. The Jew shot the guy and and really had no reason to shoot him. The guy wasn't trying to breach the gate. He was just outside of it taking pictures and the Jew shot him. No, Continuing no with charges will come against him. I'm sorry. I, I don't know if charges came against him or not. I didn't follow it up, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was never charged. It wouldn't surprise me. That they seem to um, always be granted some sort of special privileges that often isolates them and, and they're never prosecuted for their crimes. Epstein, men like Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, are, are an exception. And there must be greater reasons why he was persecuted. Somebody must have wanted to take him out of the picture. Because he surely didn't kill himself. He did not kill himself. Continuing with Obadiah 1, or Obadiah, from verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is no understanding in him. And... The hidden things of Esau seem to be the intentions of the Edomites, the Jews who have always advanced their agenda secretly, although today they are confident and open about their plans and intentions. But here, it seems that Esau's confederates will ultimately turn against him in the end, that these nations who are tools that these non-Adamic nations, and even some of the Adamic nations who are tools and allies of Jewry, at some point will turn against Jewry. And that may be the ultimate undoing of Esau. Since Esau is in a confederacy, it seems to be that Esau is sending ambassadors to the nations to rise up against her in battle. And we may interpret the her in that opening verse of Obadiah to be the children of Israel, which is revealed in verses 10 and 11 here. But before we proceed, while this prophecy of Obadiah is a direct reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 585 B.C., it is certainly also a type for a future event. The Babylonians, who were Chaldeans and not Edomites, were the leading nation in the destruction of ancient Jerusalem, and the Edomites were subject to them. But here Esau is described as playing a leading role. So it is evident that the description of the Edomite role in the destruction of ancient Israel is also a prophecy of something which is to happen in the future, for which Edom will finally be completely destroyed at the day of the wrath of Yahweh. As it is prophesied also in the passages of Isaiah, which we have already cited here. 
yeah. So be- Bill, um, I, saw, I saw a video a few years ago where that David Rockefeller, that the guy who lived past 100, the Jew billionaire, that he just casually met the emperor of Japan to discuss a few things privately for a few days. And, and you think, what can they be talking about? It can only be how to destroy the white race, right? That that's ultimately it, it, the purpose of all their meetings. Well, well, right, or at least how the Japanese could have advantages against the West. I'm certain he's offering him something in exchange for his audience. Before proceeding to this prophecy, with, with this, I should say, prophecy of Obadiah. We may correlate another prophecy found in Revelation chapter 20. There is an interpolation in the text which concerns resurrection, which has actually prevented many men from understanding this prophecy. But we shall omit that. I'm going to skip over that. And begin with verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. Now, while the full explanation is too much for this presentation, it is found in Christreich, our commentary on the Revelation. The Edomites, who say they are Judeans, but are liars, being the synagogue of Satan, as Christ describes them in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they are the Jews of today. The Jews were let out of the pit after Christianity dominated most of the white nations of Christian Europe for a thousand years when they were emancipated in the days of Napoleon. Now, after 200 years, which they have spent building their financial and political dominance over Christians, it is Jews who are at the vanguard of the waves of immigration, non-white immigration, into white nations which are rapidly causing white Europeans to become marginalized minorities in their own countries. The Edomite Jews certainly are Satan, who has gathered all nations against the camp of the saints, being white Christian Europeans, the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. So, with this in mind, we shall continue with Obadiah from verse 8. Shall I not in that day, saith Yahweh, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, 
and understanding out of the Mount of Esau. And thy mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces. Now these are direct references to what happened in Jerusalem, but they're also prophetic of this future event of the day of Yahweh's wrath against Esau, when Esau is finally going to be completely eliminated. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, meaning Jacob's, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them, but thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yeah, thou shouldest not have looked upon their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of their distress. This is prophetic at the same time that it describes what happened in the past, at the destruction of Jerusalem. There is a lot going on here. Esau was in league with the Babylonians when Jerusalem was destroyed in 585 BC. But the Edomites also seem to have taken a proactive role in the amount of destruction brought on the inhabitants of Judah at the same time. And while the Edomites were not true brothers to the Israelites, as they were all bastards, they are nevertheless blamed for their sins against the Israelites, just as the bastard Cain was guilty of the murder of his brother, or half-brother, Abel. There is no word for half-brother in Hebrew. The enemies of God are always judged for their fruits, for their behavior, they're always challenged to do good, as John the Baptist had challenged the race of vipers to do good. But he knew that they couldn't. Once again today, Edomite Jews are overseeing the waves of non-white immigration into white Christian nations, and non-whites are increasingly gaining financial wealth, ownership rights, and political dominance in formerly white nations. It may be done by different means, but the end result is the same as it was in Judah in 585 BC. Now there is more, and we shall once again see a correlation to Revelation chapter 20, just as the Edomites had destroyed Jerusalem in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates. It is Satan 
who gathers the nations from the four corners of the earth to make war against the camp of the saints. So, as it says in Isaiah, on the day of vengeance, Yahweh has indignation against all nations, which we've already read here in Isaiah chapter 34 or 35 that we cited earlier. I forget which it was already. But Esau is the central focus of that indignation. So, Jerusalem here is also a type for the capital cities of Israel in the future. As none of this prophecy of Obadiah has yet been fulfilled, and only recently in the Christian era had the Edomite Jews had the ability to gather all of the world's nations against Israel, even if earlier in history they tried and failed to destroy white Christian Europe by imploring, by I'm sorry, by employing the Arab and Turkic hordes. So throughout history, the Jews have plotted against Christians while they were in Africa, in China, in Arabia, in Khazaria, in India, and elsewhere. And they had brought all of those nations against Christendom in this very day. For taking part in this Edomite plot to destroy true Israel. All these other nations will suffer for it. So once again, continuing with Obadiah from verse 15. For the day, just like it was in Isaiah, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen or all the nations. <clears throat> As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk, and this is addressing all the heathen or all the nations, for as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, Zion, which is the collected people of Israel, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now, all the nations in the world are not on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in modern Israel, drinking upon that mountain. No, but all the nations of the world are in the formerly white Christian nations, eating and drinking and living it up, having a grand old time as immigrants at the expense of white nations. And it's the Edomite Jews who have led them into the gates of those nations, who were the proponents of all of these modern immigration prop immigration policies that are causing these white nations to be overrun with strangers. So Esau is doing the same thing that he did in a different way back in 585 BC. But it has the same effect, the destruction of Israel and Judah. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing how people can't see it that... Um... You know, all these non-whites just mag ma magically appear in your neighborhood. Like, like who brought them there? How does a guy 
and a family come all the way from India and just appear in a rural village in like England or America, you know, someone must be in that country and, and you know, offering them aid and, and telling them where to go and, and setting them up, getting them a house, helping them to speak English so that they can fit in. You know, someone must be behind it. They they don't just jump on a plane, uh, you know, especially in a little rural village when they start popping up randomly, right? Well, absolutely. And, and all of those um, big fancy boats, I guess I should call them, that, that George Soros had bought for these Africans to take across the Mediterranean and land in Italy or Spain, I mean, it's absolutely clear. There, there is Edomite Jew after Edomite Jew after Edomite Jew in these institutions where these policies are created who have admitted that it is they who are behind all of this immigration. They've admitted it over and over and over again. It's all over YouTube and, and various places of the internet, these admittances. There is no doubt who is behind this, these endless streams of legal and illegal immigration. And that's Esau opening up the gates so that strangers could pour into the cities of Jacob. Is exactly what it is. I've seen videos of even um, in Greece, they have um, thousands and thousands of um well, I'll call them Israeli, you know, Jews, uh, students and uh, youngsters in the, their military who are all helping and giving aid to people pouring from the Middle East. They, they ship them to Greece and then they go on their way. You know, they walk into Germany or, or wherever, but they, they're all clearly young students. So, so all of them are partaking in it. They, they fund them so that they can provide them food and aid and uh, tents and, and clothes and send them on their way, right? that they're all behind it not not just the billionaires the whole race absolutely that there's no doubt it, it's whenever you see that these um civil rights marches in the united states back in the 50s and 60s it was always jews at the vanguard of the civil rights marches and jews at the vanguard of immigration marches and pro-immigration movements it, it's been like that throughout the entire 20th century, 21st century. And it's not a secret. All you have to do is open your eyes and look. And once you realize that these Jews are the Edomites of, of Judea, that they're the Edomites, the ancient Edomians, and the people of God's curse, and they're not Israel at all, once you realize who true Israel is, as we've established through history and scripture, it's very clear that this is what's happening. That this is Satan leading all of the nations of the world against the camp of the saints. That this is the, this Edom in the prophecy of Obadiah, who's opening the gates of the cities of Jacob to all of the strangers. There's another set of prophecies which are parallel to these, which are found in Ezekiel chapters 38, and 39 and and those two chapters are themselves a hebrew parallelism where the same prophecy is given consecutively in slightly different ways so that it can be better understood but ezekiel 38 and 39 are, are far too lengthy for us to get into this evening in this aspect and and they're not 
an exact prophecy. They don't mention Edom or Edomia. It, it's um, except on the terms that that perhaps the Revelation refers to that the chief prince of Gog and Magog, and that the prophecy in the Revelation mentions Gog and Magog. So it can all be connected through prophetic language. In in Revelation chapter twenty, it's Satan going out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle against the camp of the saints. We see that language in Ezekiel chapter 38, which is a parallel prophecy, so we can understand that it's Satan in Ezekiel 38 as well, and reading all these prophecies in Isaiah, which we have, and in Obadiah, we can put that together with these Edomite Jews, and we'll put that together next week as we discuss the nature of Edom in the New Testament. That, that'll make the final connections that we need to make here, I pray. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 are just too long to get to in, in this presentation, in this proof. But it's definitely, each of them are parallel prophecies. They're not consecutive one to another. It's a parallelism where the same prophecy is given twice in a row. That happens elsewhere in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 27 and 28, I believe, concerning the king of Tyre. So that, that's a method that's used by Ezekiel several times. But Ezekiel chapter 38 and Ezekiel chapter 39 are basically two separate ways to express prophecy of the same future event. And, and that's called a Hebrew parallelism. It usually doesn't occur from one entire chapter to another entire chapter. But it does very often occur in verses and within verses, where the same entity, object, or event is referred to twice and described a little differently in two consecutive sentences or clauses, and both refer to the same entity. That's a parallelism. Okay, that's another digression. Continuing with Obadiah, in light of all this, from verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. And then skipping to verse 21. And Savior shall come up upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. And Mount Zion and the Mount of Esau are allegories there for the respective peoples, not mere references to mountains in Judah and Edomia. Today we await the fulfillment of Obadiah, the destruction of world Jewry, and the destruction of all of the aliens in Israel and all of the strangers who are feeding themselves upon Mount Zion, which is the mountain of Yahweh. All of them shall be as though they had not been. Exactly as it is described in 
related prophecies in Isaiah and in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and elsewhere. Which we have cited this evening. When the Edomites are completely destroyed, that is when the Camp of the Saints prophecy is also fulfilled, where it says in Revelation chapter 20, And the devil that deceived them, that deceived all the nations, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Jews who have controlled most of the world's media for the past century, they are also the devil which has deceived the entire world by means of that control and has gathered all of the world's heathen nations against Israel, the camp of the saints. I don't so know. So once you put it all together, you realize that Satan is essentially the, the Edomites, right? And and of course, you know, all the other races, but, but they're really just foot soldiers of the Edomites. Right. And and Satan, the entity which we know as Satan, is greater than the just the Edomites themselves. But when Isaac was placed on that altar and everything in the loins of Isaac was dedicated to Yahweh God. Then Jacob and Esau ultimately came to represent the people of Adam or God and the people of the devil, which are the Edomites of scripture and all world history ever since has revolved around them. So even though there was a serpent and there were Nephilim and, and there were giants and, and wicked men, wicked men who were wicked by the fact of their origin as being in rebellion against God, and those men existed on earth even before Adam, because the serpent was already there in the garden representing that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were always opposed and, and at enmity with the Adamic race, as it states in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In spite of all that, wider picture, greater picture of history, Jacob and Esau were chosen to be the representative parties of God and the devil down throughout history from the time that Isaac was placed on that altar. And we will see that next week as we discuss Edom in the New Testament, the nature of Edom in the New Testament. I have an, an addendum this evening, a brief discussion on, on Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, because many church Christians, that they'll go to read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, as it appears in the King James Version and other popular Bible translations, and they'll try to use that to somehow disprove what all these other prophecies say about Edom. 
So, so there are many denominational Bible students who would protest that it says in, in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 7, verse 7, that thou shalt not abhor an Edomite. So when they read Malachi, or Paul's citation of Malachi in Romans chapter 9, they usually mince or twist words, where the word of Yahweh says, Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. And that word for hate there is the same Greek or Hebrew word, depending on whether you're in the Old Testament or New, everywhere it says that God hates his enemies or that God hates the wicked and he's going to destroy them. It's the same word. Its definition doesn't change simply because it's used of Esau. In Romans chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus quoted this very passage from Malachi to distinguish the Israelites from the Edomites of his own time, where Paul also professed care only for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he specifies them further by saying, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, none of which things were ever extended to the children of Esau. Never. So Paul of Tarsus, denying Esau all of those things, not caring for Esau, but specifically caring only for his own kinsmen according to the flesh. He did not interpret Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, in the manner in which denominational Christians interpret it today. And neither does Malachi, which is the word of God. In Malachi chapter 1, where it says, I hated Esau. So it is evident that the prophet Malachi, the apostle Paul, and even Yahweh God himself do not interpret Deuteronomy 23.7 in the same manner as those who would dispute with the fact that Yahweh God hates Esau. And that hatred for Esau is demonstrated in all of these other prophecies which foretell of the utter destruction of Esau. And it's going to happen. So the truth is that we cannot force an interpretation of Deuteronomy 23.7, which conflicts with all of these other passages. Yahweh our God does not contradict himself, and he does not change as Malachi also attests. So to assume that God can change or contradict himself is the height of arrogance and blasphemy. So if there is another possible interpretation of Deuteronomy 23.7 that does not conflict with these other scriptures, 
That is the interpretation which we must adopt. But looking elsewhere for verification of the reading of this passage, in the oldest copies of Scripture, which are among the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Hexapla of origin, the entire passage is wanting. Copies of Deuteronomy 23.7 do not exist in the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Hexapla of origin. However, the possibility or even the probability of an alternate reading of Deuteronomy 23.7 is certainly manifest in other ways. The Syrians... As well, just like the Genesis one? Absolutely. That we could tell that this verse may have been corrupted is manifest in other ways by looking at the original Hebrew. The Syrians, or Aramaeans, wherever you see Aram in Scripture, I'm sorry, wherever you see Syria in Scripture, when you look at the Hebrew word, it's Aram. Whenever you see Syrians in Scripture, it's a plural of Aram. It's Aromi. And the Syrians, or Aramaeans, have a long history of kindred relations with the Israelites which we will get to. In the Hebrew alphabet, the letters D or Daleth and R or Resh were often confused. They look almost the same. They look almost identical. And perhaps in computer text, it's easier to tell them apart. But in cursive writing, they're almost impossible to tell apart. And they were often confused. And such confusion is found in many places in Scripture, where between the Hebrew and the Greek texts, for example, Ripta and Diptha, or Dodanum and Rodanum, or the name Obedidam, and Abed Aram are all at times confused for one another. This place is where the King James Version has Obedidam, and so does the Septuagint Version. But then in other places, the Septuagint Version has Abed Aram. So Aram was read instead of Edom in the name Obedidam. And it very well could be Obed Aram. Dodanum is the name of one of the tribes of Japheth in the King James Version. In places in the Septuagint, in certain manuscripts, it says Rodanum, where an R was read instead of the D. And the R is more accurate, but the D prevails in most of the manuscripts, being the Rodanum being the Greeks of the island Rhodes, who were descendants of the Japhethites just like Javan, who was an Ionian Greek. Javan and Iowan, or the Ionian Greeks, are the same term, one in Greek and one in Hebrew. So these letters were often confused. And in other places, the D and the R were confused, even in common words. And that's evident in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, 
where the King James Version reads, I will not transgress. The Hebrew word being abar. Where newer translations, such as the New American Standard Bible, or the American Standard Version, as well as the Septuagint, and other versions read, I will not serve, the verb being the Hebrew word a bad, the D and the R being confused, where it says, I will not transgress, the context fits better if we read a D instead of an R, abad instead of abar, and translate it to read, I will not serve. as the Septuagint translators read the same word 2,300 years ago. The Daleth and the Resh, the DNER, were confused in the accounts of David's conquest of Edom, where in 2 Samuel chapter 8 we read, And David gat him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, we read, speaking of the same account, Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, slew of the Edomites in the Valley of Salt, 18,000. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servant. Thus Yahweh preserved David whithersoever he went. And the version in 1 Chronicles, which we just cited, is upheld in 2 Kings chapter 14 and in the 60th Psalm, which mentioned the same event. It was Edomites and not Syrians who were killed in the Valley of Salt, which is also clear in the wider context of 2 Samuel chapter 8, but the error remains in the King James Version. And the difference is reading Edomi, rather than Aromi. And in Hebrew, there are only three letters. Aleph, whether it's the E for Edom or the A in Aram, it comes, the first letter, the vowel, comes from the same Hebrew letter, Aleph. And the second letter is Resh or Daleth. Edom or Aram, Edomi in the plural, or Aromi. And then the third letter is the M or the Mem. And the fourth letter in the plural is the Yod, which is represented as a Y. So with that one difference of a letter, a D or an R, a Resh or a Daleth, it could be Edomi or Aromi. And the context insists that it was Edomites that were killed in the Valley of Salt. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, yet it says Syrians in the King James Version. And when we go to 1 Chronicles 18 and, and 2 Kings 14 and Psalm 60, it's always Edomites. But they made that mistake and wrote Syrians in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. And that's a mistake. It should have been Edomites. It should have been read as Edomi rather than Aromi. The difference being the one letter. So reading a D instead of an R 
in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, may lead one to believe that thou shalt not abhor an Edomite. But it's more scripturally accurate to read, thou shalt not abhor an Aramean or a Syrian. And the words Edomite and Aramean, as I have explained, are virtually indistinguishable in written Hebrew letters. Further support that the word should read Syrian in Deuteronomy 23.7 is found just a short while later. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5, where we read, And thou shalt speak and say before Yahweh thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. And that describes Jacob. A Syrian ready to perish was my father. The brother of Rebekah was called Laban the Syrian. And the Syrians were also close family to Israel. The Syrians were not abhorred in, by Israel in the subsequent history of the kingdom. But the Edomites had always proven themselves to be enemies. So God hated Esau. But the Israelites never abhorred a Syrian. In fact, the Syrians were also subjects of Israel throughout much of the history of the kingdom. And even though there was infighting later on between the Syrians and the Israelites, Elijah the prophet was sent to anoint a man, the king of Damascus, the king of Syria, by Yahweh God. So the Syrians were never abhorred or hated by God, but the Edomites were. So how do we read Deuteronomy 23.7? I would read Deuteronomy 23.7 in the same way that we read Deuteronomy 26.5, where it says that a Syrian ready to perish was my father. I would read Deuteronomy 23.7 with the R instead of the D. Thou shalt not abhor a Syrian or an Aramean. So that's my answer to that. I also think that um, that Hebrew script is inferior to the um, Paleo-Hebrew one, right? Or, or at least the ones that our race developed. Uh, I, at first, I believe there was an in-between version when, when the Israelites came back from Babylonian. It wasn't quite that script. It was still half-half. And then later, it was developed into that script a few centuries later. But but the ones, the, the Israelites that went to Europe, they developed a much better language, Greek and then Latin and then all the Germanic languages, right? And well, absolutely. you don't have any of these problems uh, that you do with their script where you can confuse letters all the time, right? Absolutely. And they aren't the only letters that are confused. That There's another letter, the Vab, which looks exactly like the Resh or the Daleth, except that the upper stroke is a lot shorter. It's only a half stroke in, instead of a full stroke. But the Vab is also confused very often for a Resh or a Daleth or vice versa in, in words in Scripture. And, and we don't know how many words in Scripture that this confusion affected.
And and then there's two other letters that are very similar, the he and the hef, which are sometimes confused. And the fab is sometimes confused with them because it's very similar. So we have that the two sets of three letters in this modern Hebrew text that are very similar. Yeah, it's easy to tell them apart in computer type. But how long have we had computer type? For 2,000 years, scribes wrote these manuscripts out, and they very often confused these letters. Or translators reading written manuscripts confuse the letters. So this modern Hebrew alphabet has probably, that these Jews had, had contrived in the two centuries leading up to the time of Christ, has probably caused a lot of confusion in our scriptures. Where the original Hebrew alphabet was the Phoenician alphabet, it was the same alphabet because the Phoenicians were Israelites. That original Hebrew alphabet was much more like the, the alphabet of the Greeks and Romans, which all European alphabets eventually derived from. And it was much more difficult to confuse all these letters. It shows a different mind, right? A more logical mind that makes it. Well, well right. I can't imagine how the, these Jews had, had. I can't imagine how these Jews had concocted this alphabet and, and purposely left it so easy to confuse certain letters. It must be on purpose, or, or are they really that stupid, or are they just crafty? I, I don't know how this alphabet was developed. I don't think we can know, but it did appear two or three centuries before Christ when it began to appear. I don't think it's any older than the, the late third century BC. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Yeah, I, th I think it suits them because if they write their um, evil Talmud in this, where, where it's difficult to read and all that, then it, then it suits them because it means uh, Goyim can't read it. And who would want to learn that alphabet anyways? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, I probably know most of it. I could recognize most of it, but I, I really try not to not to learn it that because it's to me it's convoluted. And I think that they've convoluted Hebrew that they've made a lot of contrivances and inventions with their vowel pointing system. And, and it's, it, it, the mind of the Jew is Babel. It's confusion. It always is. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you, you for joining that, me. Um, the uh, Israelites, you know, European people, they looked at that and said, okay, this, this needs to be improved. And then that's why they developed the um, better alphabets, right? It shows you that need to improve and, and invent and inspire, you know. Well, absolutely, right. And and the Greek alphabet was actually even closer to Hebrew early on, where they had the kappa, and that, that was like our Q, right? And and they dropped it. And a digamma, and they dropped that. And a sampi, and they, they dropped those three letters in classical Greek. But in archaic Greek, they had them. So, so they refined it further. They realized they didn't need those letters to represent the sounds that they made. They could use these other letters. So they, they modified the character count 
down somewhat. And we're still able to spell all their words. So that the the um the Latin alphabet also uh, I guess has some improvements over the original Phoenician. Perhaps I mean that's a subjective statement. But this Hebrew alphabet that's used in in the last twenty two twenty three hundred years it it's horrible. Yeah, we can. Yeah, and, and we we have. I'm sorry for an sh or a ch we, we just write out or a th you know there's no need we've figured out we don't need to anymore we can just spell it out and people know what sounds there are well well right but the the hebrew alphabet also did does some of that i, I mean the, the the s character could also be an sh the tab could also be a thav or a th it it's um the problem with it is that those that there's six letters that could be confused with other letters rather easily in, in the handwriting of a scribe. And when one scribe writes it and somebody else reads it 200 years later, you could get from being an Edomite to being a Syrian in 200 years with the stroke of a pen. And that certainly suits the Jews. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Bill. And then um, next week we'll go in more into the character of the dragon, the the Jew bastard, right? Yes, we'll go into the nature of Edom in the New Testament. Because there are other correlations that can be made that actually help to cement the correlations that we made this evening between Jewry and Satan. All right. Thanks for me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh and good night.